TUC Radio, Time of Useful Consciousness. Chris Hedges, War Profiteers are Fueling This Crisis. This is an urgent, unscheduled segment of the Mark Steiner Show, broadcast on March 4, 22, on the Real News Network. Mark Steiner talks with Chris Hedges about the path that led to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Mark Steiner came from FM Radio beginning in 1993. In 2018, he started the Mark Steiner Show on the Real News Network, where he also works as a host and an author. Mark Steiner's conversation with Chris Hedges is moving, personal, and goes beyond the war profiteers. It includes Hedges' own haunting memories about reporting for the New York Times as a war correspondent. And it picks up the question that causes such anger and division right now, whether or not weapons should be shipped to Ukraine. Here's Mark Steiner's welcome to Chris Hedges. The war in Ukraine is a complex matter. The reasons behind it, the politics of the moment, are what I like to call a dialectical dance of different factors. And we'll be hearing those voices who decry the war, oppose the Russian invasion, are aware of the Western interference, and offer an independent and nuanced analysis. One of those who knows how to cut through the simplistic lies and jargon, with the passion of someone who's experienced war, and an analysis of one who has written hundreds, if not thousands, of articles, as well as numerous books, is Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Chris Hedges, who I've interviewed numerous times before. He was foreign correspondent for 15 years for the New York Times. He served as our Middle East Bureau Chief, Balkan Bureau Chief for the same paper. He worked for the Dallas Morning News, Christian Science Monitor, NPR, and he's written numerous books, and I've read them all. American Fascists, The Christian Right and the War on America, Empire of Illusion, The End of Literacy, and The Triumph of the Spectacle. War is a force that gives us meaning. America, farewell tour, days of destruction, days of revolt. And Chris Hedges, welcome. Good to have you with us. Thanks, Mark. So where to begin this? I mean, there's so much here. I... Let me just start with you for a moment. I think one of the things that struck me about this piece that you wrote, and, and it's been reflected in other things I've seen you write over the years and speak about over the years, is the passion and analysis you bring to this because of someone who has experienced the horrendous aspects of war, who's been in the middle of it. Human beings who have not seen this, you do not understand what it's like to be stuck in a war, what war means, what it costs. Yes. War as an instrument of political pressure, it, it's not, of course, it's not politics by other means. It is uh, about the destruction of all systems that nurture and protect life, environmental, social, cultural, political, familial, religious. It is demonic, uh, especially when you are using the kind of industrial weapons that define war in the 20th century. So. I wrote a piece called uh, Chronicle of a War Foretold. I was in Eastern Europe in 1989 covering the revolutions uh, that uh, led to the breakup of the Soviet Union. And there was a universal understanding that the expansion of NATO beyond the borders of a unified Germany would be an unnecessary provocation uh, of Russia. And there was a promise made by uh the Reagan administration, the British government, the French, uh, and the German governments not to do this. Well, of course, they broke that promise. Uh, they expanded uh, NATO 
all the way up to the gates of the Ukraine. They had prom Clinton administration had promised not to then station NATO troops in Eastern Europe. And let's just roll off the list that are countries that are now NATO countries. That's Poland, Hungary, the Czech Republic, Bulgaria, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Romania, Slovakia, uh, Slovenia, Albania, uh, Croatia, Montenegro, and North Macedonia. Now, the fact is NATO, with the breakup of the Soviet Union, should have been rendered obsolete. And there was all this talk about the peace dividend. I don't know if you remember, and we wouldn't have to plow uh, the resources and money into weapons and the military that we did during the Cold War. But of course, uh, what happened was that uh, the arms manufacturers uh, saw a multi-billion dollar bonanza by refitting uh, communist bloc countries to make them uh, militarily compatible with NATO. So, and that's, of course, what happened. I was in Warsaw not long ago. There are billboards from Raytheon all over the city because, of course, they're bilking all sorts of money from uh, the Poles. And a lot of this is done through uh, loans. But all of the, if you looked at the stock prices uh, since the conflict in the Ukraine, Lockheed Martin, Raytheon, General Dynamics, Boeing, Northrop Grumman, etc., uh, they've quadrupled, or they've certainly increased quite a bit, just as they did at the inception of uh, the wars in the Middle East. That's how they make their money. So the perpetuation or the expansion of NATO beyond the borders was done to feed these companies. It never made geopolitical sense. Everyone, uh, from Henry Kissinger, not a man I particularly admire, to George Kennan, to others, uh, were quite frank about this. And uh, now they're uh, constructing in Poland a NATO missile base that's 100 miles from the Russian border. We, we, we almost had a nuclear showdown, or we had a, had a nuclear showdown, almost went to nuclear war with the Soviets over the establishment of missile bases in Cuba, which was 90 miles off the coast of Florida. So the Russians were clearly baited. They have every right to feel betrayed and uh, threatened. And remember that the Soviet Union was devastated with the German invasion, the Nazi invasion in World War II in the century before, devastated by the Napoleonic invasion. Uh, my father was a cryptographer at the Tehran conference and coded all of Roosevelt's correspondence. And that conference was in many ways about establishing the buffer zone uh, that Stalin wanted uh, so that the, the uh, Soviet Union would feel protected. Now, all of that said, preemptive war, which is, of course, what we did in Iraq and what the uh, Russians have now done in the Ukraine, is under post-Nuremberg laws, a criminal war of aggression. It's a war crime. I, I don't think the invasion of Ukraine would have happened if the promises that were originally made to Russia, to Gorbachev in particular, had been kept. But then to understand is not to condone. The, the invasion of Ukraine is a crime. And I, I wrestle with this question you just raised, and I'm, and I'm raising it with numbers of people. The provocation by the West and NATO is very real. And I, don't wanna, I wanna come back to that because I think that needs to be understood by people how that is a huge factor in what we're seeing here at this moment. Russia has a long history of um, invading countries around it for its own imperial um, reasons. You know, whether Chechnya, the taking of Crimea, um, and these have been happening for over 100 years. They've been in, involved in these wars, including Afghanistan, 
but but in when it comes to Ukraine, they did. They seized Crimea. They've 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 helped seize in, in every way except the way of incorporating into the, into 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 Russia uh, parts of the Ukraine. So why do you maintain that this would have not have happened had NATO not encroached so closely on Russian territory? Because and, and Gorbachev, Yeltsin, and in the early years of Putin, uh, Russia wanted to build relationships and security alliances and economic agreements with Europe. That was the goal. And that was something that was rebuffed because uh, in order to justify these massive arms expenditures, you had to create an enemy. And if Russia wasn't willing to be an enemy, Russia would be turned into one. Again, that's speculative, but certainly uh, Gorbachev was quite upfront about building mutual alliances, including security alliances between Russia, Europe, and the United States. But Gorbachev got nothing, Yeltsin got nothing, and Putin got nothing. Uh, in fact, what they got was aggression. Of course, it's speculation, and then we can go back to the old Soviet Union invading Hungary after World War II and, and Czechoslovakia and all that. All of that is true. But I do think that there was a genuine desire uh, in the early years after the Cold War on the part of Russia to be integrated into uh, Europe, and that was um, never done. So, and in, in, in coming back to Ukraine for a moment, just in terms of that relationship, I mean, the relationship between Ukraine and, and, and Russia is um, an ancient one, in a sense, ancient in, in terms of the, the, the 1600s, when actually it, where it all began. The beginning of the whole Russian Empire actually began in the Ukraine under the first Vladimir there. Um, the interaction between these two bodies, these two nations, has been going on for a long time. So, and, and Russia has always maintained that it has certain sovereignty over Ukraine, even during the years when um, when Ukraine was representing the United Nations by its own ambassador and not the Soviet ambassador as Ukraine SSR. We all know what that that it was really part of the Soviet Union. So, th- talk for a bit about that relationship and how you think that also feeds into what we're seeing now. And the complexity, what I've, I've talked to some people on the ground, and it, they also paint a picture in Ukraine right now of the resistance being everybody from the left to the right fighting the Russians. So I'm curious how all that fits into, into your analysis of what's going on. There's no question that the Soviet Union, like the United States, uh, indulged in all the sins of empire. You know, the, the, there's been very fraught relationships between the Soviet Union and before that, the Tsarist Russia and uh, Eastern Europe. I mean, there were moments in the history, of course, when the country of Poland didn't even exist uh, because right. of Moscow. So yes, there always have been tensions, but there were also tensions within Europe, uh, which of course led to the most egregious example is World War One and World War Two. but there were all sorts of conflicts before. Uh, so yes, historically, there have been tensions and there have been conflicts. Europe uh, largely managed to move beyond that after World War II. And again, I will go back to the reconfiguration of Russia after the Cold War that I, uh, I, I it's my reading of the uh, first three leaders, again, in the early years of Putin, that they, uh, they wanted integration. They didn't want confrontation. I'm going to come also talk a bit more about the the, the role of the war profiteers in all of this, because that really does get lost in many discussions, yeah. especially in the mainstream media. Um, just before you came on, I started reading the lyrics of Masters of War by Bob Dylan, 
how it it was it fit into this description of the world that we're facing at the moment. And you list a number of things in this article and companies that that are prof- making profits off of what's happening at this very moment will make huge profits if it continues. So that that's a fact we don't often put into, at least in the establishment world, they don't put that into the analysis of why we're in the situation we're in. Uh, so yeah, this is yesterday. All four uh, General Dynamics, Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman, Raytheon hit their 52-week highs because, of course, uh, fueling a conflict in the Ukraine expanding NATO, this is good for business, to make any geopolitical sense, but it's good for business. Uh, the European Union has now allocated hundreds of millions of dollars to purchase weapons for the Ukraine. Uh, Germany has said it will almost triple its defense budget uh, for 2022. Biden has asked Congress for $6.4 billion to fund the Ukraine, and that's to supplement the $650 million in military aid to the Ukraine over the past year. So the permanent war economy uh, was largely responsible for extending the debacles in the Middle East, in particular in Afghanistan. We know from the Afghan papers that all the policymakers realized that uh, it was a quagmire, that, that they would not achieve control. Uh, but again, the, the profit motive was a dominant factor, I believe. And in the same way, the profit motive was a dominant factor in the expansion of NATO. And those masters of war, as Dylan calls them, really uh, control the political system. So while there was universal agreement that NATO should not be expanded, that Russia should not be provoked, uh, the primacy of profit took control. And this is really, I believe, why we are where we are, which does not, as I want to say again, excuse the crime that Russia has committed. So talk about what what you think when you about where where we should go with this now? I mean, one of the things, again, and I'm really just trying to parse this out, hearing all kinds of progressive voices and independent thinkers and analysis from the left to kind of figure out what is actually going on, how the world should respond, and they're really very different ideas, and how you end this conflict, how you don't, in the process, and maybe this is impossible to do, how you don't desert. Ukraine. And they're going to have their own internal issues. If they remain intact, they'll have their own internal issues battling right and left inside of Ukraine and the corruption they have to deal with. That will still be, that'll be a factor in their existence. But uh, so, but but what do you think the response should be? What people should be pushing for at this moment? A moratorium on on weapon shipments to the Ukraine, because uh, if this quantity of uh, military hardware is shipped into the Ukraine, we're talking about significant quantities of military supplies, then there's no incentive to stop the war, number one. And number two, of course, the withdrawal of Russian troops. Um, But if you feed the war machine in the Ukraine, as we are doing, um, this conflict will will be extended and and the cost to the Ukrainians and, and the Russians, I mean, the Russians apparently are taking very heavy losses, will just be catastrophic. I mean, I think that that Russia has every right to ask that NATO not be uh, extended to the Ukraine and that there is a kind of Swiss-like neutrality on the part of the Ukraine. I think that's not an unreasonable request. Someone made this argument with me last night on the phone. How can you ask Ukraine to step down and, and not accept weapons when they're being attacked by Russia? We can't send troops in. That could cause World War Three, but we can't just let them 
swing in the wind. And this was somebody off the record who's a further progressive congressperson. So, I mean, and, and we had that conversation last night. How would you respond to his question? I would look at just war theory. I mean, is this a war that the Ukrainians can win? And if they can't, to fuel the conflict is not justifiable. So I don't believe that this is a war the Ukrainians can win. Uh, I think that the more Moscow is pushed, I think we've already seen this, the more ruthless they'll become. They've not yet delivered a kind of shock and awe attack on Kiev, uh, but they will if they're cornered. And the numbers of deaths, uh, the suffering on the part of innocents and the vulnerable and civilians will be catastrophic. So you don't perpetuate war unless there is the very distinct possibility that you can be victorious. I mean, we can go back and look at the Warsaw Uprising in 1944, where, again, civilians rose up against Nazi occupiers, and the Soviet Union, which did not want to march into a Ukraine that was controlled by a home army that was hostile to Stalin, uh, sat and watched, uh, was complicit in watching the Germans destroy them. Should, uh, I mean, Warsaw, by the end of it, didn't exist. The Germans completely razed the city and the numbers of dead, I don't remember the exact figure. I mean, were just staggering. So you don't perpetuate conflicts like that just to make people bleed. And, and I think that the policymakers in the West are quite aware that while this will prolong the conflict and probably provoke Moscow to be even more brutal in the war, uh, ultimately, uh, because they won't establish a no-fly zone. I mean, if they did, that's going to be an act of war in the eyes of Moscow. You can't, uh, in modern warfare, dominate a country if you don't dominate the skies. I was with the Marine Corps in the first Iraq war, and because of the aerial domination, the Iraqis were obliterated. In fact, I was in the last big tank battle uh, between the Marine Corps and the Republican Guard, north of Kuwait City, and the Iraqis are quite fine soldiers, but the T-72s don't have the range of the Abrams. Uh, but what really destroyed the Iraqi tank battalions were the Apache helicopters uh, that function as essentially uh, flying tank-destroying machines, and they just took out one tank after another. So because Russia controls the air, the game is ultimately fixed against the Ukrainians. One of the things that you that that you alluded to in this last thing you just in your last statement also reminds me of a piece that's in your in your article uh, where you wrote uh, about the, Russia's nuclear arsenal places a sort of Damocles above yeah. our heads, and you were kind of alluding to that just a moment ago. Let's kind of explore the kind of real dangers we're facing here with n nuclear powers at loggerheads in a very serious war. And well, the danger is that, and I speak from personal experience, once you open the Pandora's box of war, you lose control. War controls you. You don't control it. You can go back and look at the lead up to World War I. Uh, the the uh, largely monarchies stumbled blindly. And they were all related. They were cousins and all this kind of stuff. Blindly into this suicidal slaughter. And then you mentioned about the unification of the left and the right in the Ukraine, well, of course, that is the very toxic and potent <laughs> elixir of nationalism, right. also true in Germany. It's why they threw Rosa Luxemburg and Karl Leibniz in prison, because they, unlike the rest of the Social Democrats, did not want to support the war bonds. Uh, but this is what nationalism does. It, it is 
a very heady and powerful force. It's true in every war that I covered. Uh, I covered the Falkland War out of Buenos Aires, but I was there before the war and the military junta was discredited. Uh, there were huge, um, thousands and thousands of people shutting down the center of Buenos Aires in protests. I was in one of the protests, first time I was ever CS gassed where I was blinded. And then they invade the Falklands or the Malvinas. And they were literally hauling labor leaders who had led these protests out of jail and their faces would be covered with bruises and, and bloodied. And they would uh, repeat this mantra, Las Malvinas son Argentinas. Uh, and that's when I realized that, uh, you know, I had just become a cockroach and, uh, you know, in a Kafka story, all sanity was gone. They were also true in the inception of the war with Iraq. To, uh, I'd spent seven years in the Middle East. I was the Middle East bureau chief for the New York Times, months of my life in Iraq, I speak Arabic, to raise the you know, the issues, which I think all Arabists understood of this debacle or potential debacle was not just to be criticized, but I would come into the office at the New York Times and my phone bank would be filled with death threats. Um, nationalism evokes very dark passions. The flip side of nationalism is always racism. It's about the elevation of us above them, the denigration of the other. And uh, so, yes, of course, the Ukraine is as susceptible to this as anyone else. I don't actually consider it a very positive force. We'll have to conclude in a few minutes here, but I, I want to read a short two paragraphs from the piece that you wrote, come back to the notion of war and how we begin to address that in our world. Um, and I, I just think you just wrote so powerfully and eloquently about what it means to be inside of a war and what you feel, which people, unless you've been in any kind of conflict, don't get. You wrote, I felt the helplessness and, and the paralyzing fear, which years later descended on me like a freight train in the middle of the night, leaving me wrapped in coils of terror, my heart racing, my body dripping with sweat. I've heard the wails of those convulsed by grief as they clutch the bodies of friends and family, including children. I hear them still. Does that matter the language? Spanish, Arabic, Hebrew, Dinka, Serbo-Croatian, Albanian, Ukrainian, Russian. Death cuts through the linguistic barriers. And I think that you've done this before, but you're part of the eloquence of what you do is not just your analysis, but how you portray what war is. Because I think that's part of what kind of motivates you to write what you do and, and, to, and, to, and to really think through the analysis you have is because of your experience inside the war. Yeah, you don't know war unless you've been to war. Uh, it's, it's mythologized by mass culture and it's sanitized uh, and censored by the news media. I mean, you don't ever see war. Anybody who actually saw war, if, if you broadcast real images of war, it would be impossible to wage war. I mean, for instance, I've seen people have their legs blown off by mines. It takes them about six hours to bleed to death. In real time, we could set up through a satellite feed a camera and you could watch that full six hours, but you'd be so revolted you couldn't support the war effort. So Yes, I, I started in Central America in the 80s and ended in Kosovo uh, in the late 90s. So I, I, I know it. Uh, I suffer from it. It's hard to watch these images because they're familiar and disturbing. And uh, war is its own force. It's, it, I mean, war is the force that gives us meaning. There's the first book I wrote that essentially grappled with it. But it is in its purest form, about the culture of death. 
um, in a myriad of ways. And once you step uh, into war, uh, it, it uh, is the inverse of everything around you and very hard to grasp unless you see it. I mean, part of the problem is you don't smell it. You don't hear it. Mm. Um, you know, there are all sorts of sensory and then, of course, fear. Uh, all of that's erased in a filmic image of war and a discussion on CNN. And it's a bit like pornography uh, where, you know, all of the sensory elements uh, are removed. And this really distorts the reality of war. So, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's horrific what the Russians have done. It's inexcusable. Uh, it's a war crime. But we cannot let those forces our political leaders, and of course, in particular, the weapons manufacturers that baited uh, Russia into carrying out this invasion. So finally, to conclude with where, just in your analysis and what you're watching here, how do you think this concludes? My guess is two ways. One, uh, Putin, who has been restrained, as far as I can tell, from uh, really bombarding urban centers will get frustrated and lift all restraints and and just kill staggering numbers of people. Um, that's kind of my guess as to where he's going to go. Or uh, because there is a steady supply of arms shipments, uh, you create a kind of war of attrition uh, that just drags on and on and on, as we saw in Chechnya. Well, we will see where this goes. And Chris, I just want to say once again, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. I mean, it really is. I mean, and I and um, and to read your analysis and to hear your thoughts on all of this because uh, you were one of the most, I think, cogent uh, and the most eloquent writers when it comes to what we face in the world, whether it's the building of empire or war. So thanks again for your work and thanks for being with us today. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Mark. And, and I want to thank all of you for joining us today. And and, and we will be linking to Chris Hedges' writing, the article that uh, got me started with calling Chris once again to come on. Um, and more will be there on our site. And please let me know what you think about what you heard today, because I really want to write back to you and just write to me here at mss at thewheelers.com. And uh, I want to hear everything you think we should be doing and what you and, and where, where you think we should go. That was War Profiteers Are Fueling This Crisis. Broadcast on March 4, 2022, on the Real News Network. Mark Steiner is a Peabody Award-winning radio and podcast host. His show is broadcast every Monday and Thursday on the Real News Network. That's a news organization launched in 2007 in Canada and broadcasting on the Internet. Chris Hedges is the former Middle East Bureau Chief of the New York Times a Pulitzer Prize winner, and a columnist at Shia Post. He's the author of several books, including America, the Farewell Tour, American Fascists, The Christian Right and the War on America, and Wars of Force That Gives Us Meaning. My thanks go out to Chris Hedges, Mark Steiner, and the Real News Network. Please go to their websites for more information, including the printed transcript of this conversation. And please find a way to support them and publicize their work. And one small footnote for me as producer of TUC Radio. 
Halfway through the interview, Mark Steiner mentioned Masters of War by Bob Dylan. Come, you masters of war, you that build the big guns, you that build the death planes, you that build all the bombs, you that hide behind walls. The five largest weapons manufacturers in this world are all American and all show a recent spike in profits. Number one, Lockheed Martin, followed by Raytheon Technologies, Boeing, Northrop Grumman, and General Dynamics. No more hiding behind walls. My name is Maria Geleiden. Thank you for listening.